Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. With all the concern over healthcare these days, and finding a doctor and getting care for really any condition, imagine being pregnant and having to worry about all of that too. It's just, I think, one of the many reasons why midwives have become such a popular choice in the last decade. So the question though is, has there actually been work done to see what the difference is if someone uses a midwife or not? Well, it turns out there has been work done about that, and we are going to talk about it this morning with the help of Dr. Zoe Hodgson, who's a clinical lead for the Midwives Association of BC and clinical assistant professor at the University of British Columbia's Faculty of Medicine. Good morning, Dr. Hodgson. Good morning. Now, so you've done some work on examining the role of midwives, is that right? That's right. So um, Dr. Stahl recently conducted a study which was published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, which is a a great peer-reviewed journal, and it showed that pregnant people in BC, with uh, having care with a midwife, were less likely to have a perinatal death, preterm birth, low birth weight baby, or cesarean delivery, compared to physician patients. And there's lots of evidence to say that care with a midwife is associated with great outcomes. But the difference with this study is that it's showing that this, this, these great outcomes aren't just limited to people with low-risk pregnancies. This, this, this trend is true of people with low, medium and high-risk pregnancies with good outcomes associated across those, those risk stratification groups. Why do we think that is? What is it about that relationship with a midwife that might make a difference? Well, I mean, beyond the, beyond the study findings, there's lots of evidence that demonstrates that people who choose midwifery care compared to those choosing care with another provider have high levels of satisfaction. And this is another important birthing outcome, um, particularly when we consider place of birth with midwives often being the only primary care provider in some of the rural communities, which is really secures the ability for clients to birth close to home, which is a really important outcome. But I think the model of midwifery care, such that there's um, a, a midwife or a small group of midwives providing care to clients through pregnancy, labor birth and the postpartum period, preserving that continuity of care, building upon the relational model of care is the thing that's really associated with those good outcomes. And are there enough midwives, though, for people who want that? I feel like maybe there's also the perception that there's a more personal relationship. There is, there is absolutely a more personal relationship with a midwife, um, owing to our model with, um, as, as I said, just a small group of midwives getting to know the person through pregnancy. But no, absolutely not. There's not enough midwives. There's, a, there's definitely a midwife shortage in the province. More people are choosing uh, care with a midwife. The demand for midwifery care is ever increasing. However, the burnout rates amongst midwives are high. Um, the on-call hours um, means that a midwife is available to a client 
24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And there's lots of evidence to say that the on-call hours are the most substantive contribu- uh, contributor to burnout um, because midwives receive no compensation for this. Another thing that's affecting um, midwifery care is that the number of family physicians leaving maternity care is increasing, again, because there's no compensation for their on-call time, leading to more people looking for care with midwives. Interesting. Is there a way then to also perhaps um, you know, use this to our advantage to say, now that we know this, can we put that emphasis in certain areas where perhaps bringing down the number of, of cesarean sections? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so as, as I mentioned before, Dr. Stoll's study is associated with lower rates of cesarean sections. Um, so, we know that midwifery care is good care. Um, one of the one of the issues is that the demand for midwifery care is certainly um, beyond that of 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 the the availability of midwives. But we learned last week that the um, the ministry has showed its support. Um, to expand the number of seats available to midwifery students at UBC, which is great news. Would you say then that we have successfully integrated midwives into our healthcare system? Because Dr. Hodgson, I can remember back, you know, 25 years ago when having a midwife meant that you were doing things kind of outside the system. Absolutely. So I think what's really interesting is that midwifery is still a relatively new profession in BC. So um, the UBC midwifery program just celebrated its 20 year anniversary. Um, And the the midwifery used to be considered like a fringe career with most people choosing to receive care with a family doctor or an obstetrician in BC. That's not true in other countries. But the thing that I think has really led to the great outcomes associated with midwifery care in BC is that midwifery has been reduced in a really well integrated way with with great collaboration between midwives and family doctors, midwives having medical staff privileges at the hospitals where they work. And I think that the way midwifery has been integrated into a province has really led to the good outcomes associated with our care. Dr. Hutchin, is this something that is happening? Is this like a worldwide trend? Is this a North American trend? Is this a BC trend? Like what is going on with this? I think midwifery care is, is increasing worldwide. I think other, other in other places and other countries, um, care with a midwife is not um, as unusual as it would be in Canada, where, as I said, the profession is relatively new. Um, we know that since midwifery has been integrated into British Columbia, the number of people choosing care with a midwife is increasing rapidly. Um, the key is finding one. The, the key is finding one, and so so what we need to do is we need to work with the with the governments, with the ministry, to try and make um, midwifery more sustainable for new graduates, for for midwives who have been in the career for for a long time. Do you feel we're making progress towards that? Then the announcements that we've recently had that there does seem to be this understanding that this might be the way to go. Absolutely. I think, you know, the um, hearing from the ministry that there's, they, they provide support to expand the UBC midwifery program is a great step in the, in the right direction. But now what we need to do is we need to um, work to make the, the profession more sustainable for the midwives who are already out there practicing and, and to secure a, a stable profession for those new graduates. 
students can't learn to be midwives without midwives acting as clinical preceptors. And one of the limitations to expanding the midwifery program up until now has been the, a shortage in the number of midwives who are able to, to bring on and train new students. Midwives in BC currently have few supports and incentives in place to care for clients with higher levels of medical risk, even though we know from Dr. Stoll's study that the care for those clients, those clients could really benefit from midwifery care. Um, we heard recently that the Ministry of Health and the Doctors of BC um, have really helped uh, negotiate and recognise um, that family doctors are, are dealing with a higher level of risk in their clients um, and the increased compensation has really secured the ability of family doctors to provide good care to a, to a, a profile of clients um, which has really led to the sustain, increased sustainability in that profession. And um, so we, hopefully we can turn towards providing similar support for midwives in BC. So interesting. Dr. Hodgson, thank you for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for your interest. That's Dr. Zoe Hodgson, clinical lead for the Midwives Association of BC and also a clinical assistant professor at UBC's Faculty of Medicine, talking about the role of midwives in our province. What they found in the work that they have done is that if you expand midwifery care in BC, you actually help improve pregnancy outcomes uh, for parents and babies particularly those in rural and remote areas. And people who even had uh, you know, somewhat complicated pregnancies have improved outcomes as a result of that care. Now the question is, can we train enough and get enough midwives into those communities to help out, right? And boy, have we ever come a long way with this story. And so I was saying to Dr. Hodgson, I remember back in the day, and I know I sound old when I say that, but I'm just saying, I was a health reporter back in the 1990s, and I remember doing stories about the controversy over midwives even operating in this province and doctors didn't want to have that and the healthcare system was opposed to incorporating, you know, midwives. And now we have this integrated system all these years later that see and clearly is a choice that many parents want to make. It's really interesting. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Free contraception for all BC residents, more funding for mental health addictions, and finally that long-promised renter's rebate. But also, the carbon tax is going up, way up, and there's record-breaking capital spending for transportation investments. The surplus of last year looks like right now a thing of the past. For next year, a forecast of a more than $4 billion deficit and a further $3 billion for 2025-2026. Now, that's just a snapshot of what we heard about this year's BC budget presented yesterday. So why these choices? What kind of path is BC on? Well, joining us now to talk about that is Katrina Conroy, BC's finance minister. Thank you very much for joining us. Great to be here, Simi. Good morning. Good morning. Let's, let's start, first of all, with the idea of the deficit. So why the deficits? What happened? Well, we're being pragmatic. You know, we're, we have a prudent forecast. We have uh, prudent forecasters in our in our ministry, as well as with the Economic Forecast Council that provides us independent uh, analysis. Also, the the Bank of Canada is saying the same thing. But you know, we we also know, and and I have to keep reminding people um, that the surplus has to be spent by year end. Um, anything that's not spent by year end um, goes on the debt, which is a good thing. We're, you know, I'm I'm rather uh, frugal myself and I think we need to put money on our debt but we also need to invest in people and that's what this budget is about. What about the criticism from businesses that say there's nothing in there for them there's no growth strategies in here? 
Well, we actually have been supporting businesses quite a bit. Uh, We have one of the lowest uh, business taxes in in the country. Um, And one of the things that we're doing is is by investing in people, by making things more affordable for people, they're spending their money with local businesses. You know, they're investing in businesses. They're they're not uh, going on offshore vacations or anything crazy. They are investing right back in the community. And, And some of the things that we've done, I mean, I think that, Simi, the, the, our child care plan, I mean, we're in year five of a 10-year plan. Um, the, the BC Chamber of Commerce has been asking for a, an accessible, affordable child care plan for years, from way back when I was an advocate before I was an MLA. And that's exactly what we're doing. And actually, 75% of the growth rate of the people entering the, the labor market are women. And it's directly attributed to our childcare. And, and we know from businesses that labor is their biggest issue. And we keep hearing that, that they can't get people to work. And so we're doing a number of initiatives that will help them find those people to work for them and to get the skills they need to work. What would you classify as the biggest priorities in this budget? What do you want people to take away from this? I want people to take away that we're there for them. We've got their back. You know, times, times are tough. And we recognize that. So we have a number of affordability issues. And, you know, we've been criticized by saying that, you know, there there's small amounts here and there. But when you add them all up, they add up for people. And, and you, know, you mentioned the free contraceptive. I can't tell you, Simi, how many comments. Like, we knew it was going to be important to people, but I had no idea how many people, whether it's, it's um, like even my own granddaughter emailed me and said, oh, my God, Granny, that is amazing. <laughs> I mean, it is uh, – it, it is really uh, going to make a difference for people, and those little things add up. You know, our affordability um, affordability benefit. You know, we're adding another one in April. The BC Family Benefit. You know, we're we're increasing that, and we're adding up to five hundred dollars for single families because we know how you know how tough it can be. So putting that all together, it, it adds up and it helps people. And I think you know, I haven't had anybody complain to me about the hundred dollar credit on their power bills. In fact, a lot of people have commented on how it just came at the right time to. Help help them. So all those things add up. Right. But let's talk about the other side of that ledger. A lot of criticism about the carbon tax increase, increased by 37 cents a litre by the end of the decade. Like, do, do you think that's sustainable for people? Well, what we're doing is we're actually increasing the climate action tax credit. And, and just to be clear, we're, we're increasing the, the carbon tax to meet federal requirements. So it starts $15 a year this year, and it'll go up to 170 by um, 2030. But when we do the analysis, it, we feel that people will get more from the Climate Action Tax Credit, the majority of people. Um, we feel like probably over about 70% of the province will get more from the Climate Action Tax Credit than they'll actually be paying in, in carbon tax. And, and a reminder that if a family of four made... Uh, got $500 last year on the Climate Action Tax Credit, they'll actually get $900, up to $900 starting in July. So we're we're very cognizant of, of that issue. Okay, and what about the healthcare issues here? Like talking about that mental health and addictions plan there, it goes far, but do you think it goes far enough? Well, it's, it's definitely a start, and, and I think it does go far. I mean, our focus is on more treatment and recovery beds. And, and to start talking about the fact that, that mental health and addiction is health care, and we have to be there to support people, and we have to make sure that when people reach up out when they need help with addictions, with mental health, you know, they usually go to a primary care center first or to a primary doctor. When they reach out to that person, we need the care for them. You know, we need those treatment beds. We need the recovery beds. We, we need a, a seamless model of care for people and to support them on the recovery journey. And, and, and that's what we're going to do. What about the user fees? And I know this plan doesn't go as far as, say, the BC Liberal plan. Are there things in there that you would still like to get done? 
Well, of course. I mean, we can always do more. And with the initial uh, almost 200 beds that we're bringing in, those beds will be will, will not have a fee attached to them. And and we're going to be expanding the redfish model, which is a great model of care in, in um, Coquitlam. Um, we're looking at how we can expand that across the province. And it's a, it's a seamless model of care. So when you go in, you get that, you know, the detox treatment recovery and it, and it supports you through your entire journey and we're looking at how we can do that in, in other communities and minister whiteside will be announcing more on that soon right so there's no user fees for the new beds but what about the existing mm-hmm. beds well, those are our fees that come through the um, the IHA, but we also are saying, not, I'm from the Kootenays, that's that's a habit from the health authorities. But but we also um, and we also <clears throat> excuse me, we also have um, a support for people who can't afford it or who need uh, waivers. That they are in place. Okay, so then there's also a lot of I think padding built into this budget as well. Like you, you forecast deficits for, deficits for the next couple of years, though. Do you can you see that changing? Like, what would it take to get BC back to a balanced budget? Well, we're working towards that. <coughs> excuse me, uh, excuse me, Simi. We're working towards that. We recognize that you know people want to see a balanced budget eventually. But what we learned during the the pandemic is people are also okay with a bit of a deficit if we're spending on people, if we're investing in people in this province. And and we showed that during the pandemic, we could invest in people and we could could incur a bit of a deficit, but we still have one of the strongest economies in Canada. So I think that it's really important to invest in people, to make sure we're there for them, and, and that's what we're doing with this budget. Do you foresee a bumpy road ahead in terms of the economic forecast for BC? Well, all of the the signs, and, and we've talked and met. We had a, a presentation from uh, Tiff McClellan, the uh, Board of Canada Governor in, in Toronto, and I was there with the federal, provincial, and territorial uh, finance ministers, and and he, along with a number of forecasters, agree that it, you know it's, it's going to be a bit of a, a road this year, but it's going to balance out by next year. So by being there for people, being in their corners, supporting them this year, we can look forward to better times next year. But I think you know we. I think the the uh, finance, you know, the, the forecasters or economic forecasters are always a bit uh, small c conservative and, and very prudent, which is a good thing, and and so they should be. How would you describe yourself on that one? I'm frugal. Uh, people ask me if I went and bought new shoes for the for the budget as was tradition for finance ministers, and, and I said no, I'm too frugal. I've got a perfectly good pair of shoes. I polished them, so <laughs> I, I am frugal. So. Yes, All right. But but some of the things that we're doing, I think, is, you know, those little things that I said have made will make such an impact. One of the things that hasn't been mentioned is the increase to supports for foster families, which I think is incredible. I mean, it's it's just for my for my I was minister of children and families, and to be able to increase foster parents' supports substantially makes such a difference for the support that they're giving to those incredibly vulnerable children and youth in our province. So things like that that are so really important. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's Katrina Conroy, BC's Minister of Finance, talking about BC's budget. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. We will be getting business reaction as well coming up after the 7.30 news. We'll speak to the BC Chamber of Commerce about the budget, what they liked, what they didn't like about it. So that is ahead. This is Mornings with Simi. With some horrible, horrible people that took advantage of this young man. I don't think anyone knew what was going on. 
That is former NHL player Chris Beach speaking with Global's Romina Dea about one of the brightest and most dedicated players that he's ever coached, 14-year-old Robin Janjua. Robin took his own life on February the 13th after reportedly being sextorted by unknown assailants. Now, Surrey RCMP say they are investigating whether sextortion may have played a role in this. But it's really shed new light on this issue about the importance as well about educating not just young girls about this, but young men about this, young boys about this as well. Tiana Sharifi is with us now, the CEO of the Exploitation Education Institute. Good morning. Hi, good morning, Simi. First off, can you explain to us what is sextortion? Yeah, sextortion is a term that we're using to define digital blackmail. So somebody using explicit photos or videos in exchange for receiving either more uh, photos or videos or in exchange, especially when it comes to the mails for money. Right. And most people, when they hear this, they probably, Tiana, associate this with young girls, right? Yes, yes. And it's it's interesting because when I give presentations to the students, I mean, I've, even the past, I think it's been three days now, um, we've presented to over 3,000 students. And when we start to talk about how sextortion is the one online sexual predation crime that is targeting majority of the males, there is a surprise within the room, even amongst the boys themselves. And I think that really speaks to the fact that we're not normalizing um, this, especially this form of sexual predation online. And I think that even more importantly, and we need to understand this, not just for the boys, but also for parents, that sextortion is not based off of gender or sexuality. These sex orders don't, you know, they're not interested in that. They're just interested in getting what they want at the end of it. It's just about the money for them, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Okay, so then how are young boys being lured into this? Yeah, so essentially what we call the bait method. So they think they're talking to a young, attractive female, and either they're on webcam watching that attractive female take off her clothes um, and, and requesting him, that, that boy, to do the same thing, or it's through the exchange of photos, especially on the platform Snapchat. Um, that's still where we're seeing this happen. And so the bait is that these are actually not photos or videos of the person that they're actually speaking to. It's a sex order on the other side of the screen who is posing and using this content um, to portray themselves as a young, attractive female. And then what happens? They get blackmailed after that? Yeah. So then there's a request for, you know, if it's webcam, either they request for the boy to take off his clothes as well, or if it's through an app like Snapchat, it's an exchange of photos back and forth um, Mm -hmm. of explicit nature. And then they come back right afterwards and say that, I have a recording of this or I have screenshots of this and you have to pay me a few thousand dollars um, in order for me not to share it with everybody that you know. Oh, how common is this, Tiana? Oh, I would love to say that it's not common. Um, unfortunately, it is, it's, it's become its own epidemic. Um, so we've been contracted for, to many school districts um, just even recently to target all of the secondary school um, students because it's it's become, I would say, since the pandemic, we've seen triple the rates of sextortion. Um, and this is being reflected in RCMP reports as well. So every detachment in every community is having concerns about young boys being targeted for sextortion. What advice do you have for parents then this morning when they hear this? I would say that especially if you have a young boy, um, not assuming that all types of online exploitation are gender specific um, or have to do with sexuality, understanding that boys are even more at risk because we don't normalize that they too can be victims. Their guards are down um, and more importantly, there's a lot of shame attached 
to exploitation if they are victimized. And so just really emphasizing that if you have a young boy, please talk to them about, you know, what can happen online um, in an approach that is not shaming, not, you know, not something that would be a fearful tactic because we want them to feel safe and comfortable coming forward if something like this ever does happen to them. All right, Tiana, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's Tiana Sharifi, who's the CEO of the Exploitation Education Institute. Good advice for parents. I know it's often hard to start that conversation, but you know what I found? Using something that you heard in the news is a great conversation starter with your teenagers uh, to bring that up and say, geez, I heard this on the news today. Is this actually happening? Have you heard of this happening with kids at your school? Because this is increasingly common. We keep hearing this from people and it could be happening at your neighborhood school too. This is Mornings with Simi. Want to talk about the BC budget this morning? We heard from Finance Minister Katrina Conroy on the government's take on it, but what about the business side of things here? How are they feeling about the priorities for health care, for mental health and addictions, for housing? So let's find out what businesses are thinking about this. Joining us now is Fiona Famalakuzi, President and CEO of the BC Chamber of Commerce. Good morning, Fiona. Good morning, Simi. All right, let's start with the plus side first. What did you like about the budget? Uh, We liked uh, a couple of things. We're optimistic about uh, what the government has committed, um, $480 million over three years to the Future Ready Plan, which will help businesses navigate labour force challenges. Uh, They allocated $58 million over three years to speed up foreign credentials for uh, recognition of, of overseas professionals, which is good. Um, there's some support to address the delay in permitting approvals, which impact our natural resources sector, which would then free up investment and create jobs. So we need um, we need details on all of those, uh, as well as uh, some more details around how they plan to address things like housing, homelessness and mental health, even though they are societal issues. They're also uh, business issues. So uh, we're optimistic about those things, but need details. Okay, so how are you feeling overall then about the budget? Disappointed. Disappointed. Why is that? The the budget is an affordability budget, which helps British Columbians with the cost of living. Um, However, it does little to help businesses who are struggling with the cost of of doing business. Uh, We represent 36,000 businesses from across the province, small, medium and large, and um, uh, they've t- 87% of those businesses have told us that over the last year, the cost of doing business has increased. And 78% has told us that uh, the cost of labor has increased. So there's many, many businesses out there that are struggling and need help. One of the things we asked uh, Katrina Conroy, the finance minister, about was exactly that, right? Uh, but what about the argument then that she made, which is by helping people, they're helping people spend money at those businesses? People can only spend money if they're employed. Um, So the health of a community is a direct function of the health of its business community. Uh, If businesses struggle, then their community and therefore their community members will struggle. And that's because uh, businesses are job creators. They employ people. They help to put food on the table. They help to grow the tax base, both the corporate tax base and and the personal tax base which then helps us to put the health and social services in place that we all need. So yesterday was an opportunity to, uh, for the government to take some bold and meaningful steps 
to help businesses navigate which has been a very difficult period and which is likely to be difficult for some time to come, uh, to create a business environment that attracts investment and unlocks investment to help create those good-paying jobs and signal to the world, really, that BC is open for business. That didn't happen yesterday, and that's a missed opportunity. Okay, how would that have, what would that have looked like if they had taken those steps? What are those steps? The steps could have included, um, uh, we've been advocating for a while now, to uh, increase the threshold for the employer's health tax um, from 500,000, which it currently is, through to 1.5 million. So that uh, increase would have unlocked some financial bandwidth for our small businesses to invest in people, to invest in innovation, increase productivity, which helps drive the helps drive the economy. They could have taken steps to address the cumbersome PST uh, system that our, that our members are um, continuously telling us about. So there are specific steps that they could have taken um, but didn't, and um, we'll continue to advocate on that front. What are the ways in which do you think growth could have been addressed? What could they have done to encourage that? I think really just investing in businesses, helping them to navigate uh, what is a very, very expensive uh, province to do business in. It's, it's taxes, it's fees, it's the, the mandatory paid sick leave, it's the, uh, the introduction of the, of the, or the recent introduction of the staff holiday. Um, in, in, on top of interest rate rises, inflation, uh, an impending uh, recession and so on, businesses are struggling. They are they are shouldering the weight and uh, growth will happen when businesses are, are healthy. Uh, they're not healthy at the moment. Many are struggling. And, uh, and that's what we were looking for yesterday, for the business community to get a break so that they can invest in people, create jobs and um, help everybody to put food on the table and keep communities healthy. What does this year look like for businesses then? I know there's, you know, coming out of the pandemic, uh, this is a year of adjustment. I think a lot of people, a lot of economists believe. What are businesses telling you? Well, as as I mentioned right up front, um, we recently surveyed our members and uh, uh, 87% of them told us that uh, the cost of doing business in British Columbia has increased over 12 months, over the last 12 months. And 78% has told us that the cost of labor has increased. We know that we have a very tight labor market. Um, So those are just some of the statistics that we have. And we have more coming out in the next few weeks. So we know, having had conversations with many, many on a daily basis, uh, businesses are struggling and uh, they need a break. And what about the childcare issue? That was one of the other things the government held up, the finance minister held up, is, oh, no, this is helpful for businesses. They're saying by investing in childcare, they're helping you attract more employees. That's true. Yep. The, the, the childcare, because childcare is available, it helps to allow parents to come back into the, into the workforce. That's helpful. Uh, we want to also ensure, though, that childcare is also available through private service providers. We want to make sure that uh, it's a balanced, uh, balanced offering. Um, but yes, that's that's one good thing that helps uh, individuals come back into the to the marketplace. Yeah, how is that labor market looking right now? Still incredibly challenging for businesses out there. Very, very tight. Yeah, very, very tight. It's an employees market at the moment, and um, our businesses are telling us that uh, some of them are. Uh, operating in reduced hours, uh, whether it's uh, 
weekend hours or, or Monday through Friday because they just do not have the staff or cannot afford the staff to run, um, you know, 100% of the time. Well, Fiona, thank you so much for that this morning. Thanks, Simi. Good to talk. This is Mornings with Simi. A bit of a surprise move from Vancouver Council last night. Rather than talking about a property tax hike and passing it next week, as expected, they talked about it, presented it, and passed it. So many residents are just finding out this morning that a 10.7% property tax hike is a done deal. In the words of Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim, which we just heard, it sucks. It does. Especially after campaigning on unsustainable property tax increases under previous mayors. So what has changed? Where is this money going? Why is it so needed? Well, joining us now is ABC Vancouver Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. Thanks for being with us this morning. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. Okay, and thanks for being here. So how did this get moved up a week? Like, why did this get voted on last night? Yeah, well, Council, um, there's a whole process to the budget. I think we got the first budget outlook uh, mid-summer last year, um, and then the original draft budget was tabled in October. Uh, This new Council decided to take its time uh, with the budget so that we could delve into it. Um, Then there's, you know, public engagement surveys that happen. We heard from about 50, 40, 45 speakers yesterday. Um, and then uh, council felt that it had all the information and the inputs that it needed um, and wanted to move it forward. We do have a statutory responsibility to get this budget moving. And um, the city has been working on a provisional budget for the first quarter because we wanted more time to delve into it. So it just got moved forward, voted on, and it's it's done now? Uh, yeah, the, uh, the debate and decision was completed last night. Okay, and where is this money going? Why is it even higher than that 9% number we were hearing about before? Well, what we found when we, if you use the analogy of a ship, uh, the city of Vancouver is like a big ship and it takes time to change direction. Um, And this is really about riding the ship. Um, And so we're moving forward on trying to align the spending with what we heard from Vancouverites was really important to them. And that was things like public safety. For example, you also saw us make an additional investment in Vancouver Fire and Rescue um, to ensure we have the appropriate number of firefighters. They have been shorted um, in the same way we've made an investment in mental health services alongside the DPD. Um, and there were some really significant pressures, and you've heard them with respect to inflation and infrastructure. Uh, at the same time, it's taking more time to identify those efficiencies and put them in place that we know Vancouverites expect us to do so that we're using their money responsibly. Um, this is not an easy decision at all um, and not something we take lightly uh, when you're passing on these costs to residents um, and to the small businesses in our city. Um, but it was one that we had to take in order to move us forward. I think that is the question about efficiencies there is one that I've been getting from quite a few people this morning. So what is the process for identifying efficiencies and is any of that work going to still be done? Like where can we cut so that we mitigate some of this cost to to residents? Yeah, absolutely. Um, That work is still going to be done. Some of the initial work that was done for this budget um, includes holding vacancies at up to 2%. We've reviewed a number of external leases in terms of uh, city offices and space and um, reduced a number of the space and uh, costs related there. Um, So there's been a number of measures, uh, frozen discretionary expenses, for example. Um, All those pieces have remained in place. Um, And we'll continue to do additional work. I think moving forward, it's about identifying new revenue sources for the city, uh, additional uh, efficiencies that can be gained through things like investment in technology that's less reliant on people so that processes can be more efficient. Um, And as I said, those things take time. We've been in office for 100 days. So 
Um, this is about riding the ship and it's turning slowly, but this is an unprecedented tax increase and it's not something that uh, should become the norm. And so we've got a lot of work cut out for us to ensure that we can bring some reasonable tax uh, levels back in future years to Vancouver. So what do you, how does that work unfold, do you think, over the next year? What You've got this 10.7% increase now, but don't want to come back a year later and find out it's something similar. Yeah, uh, and we're already working towards that. Um, that's very much on our mind. And we signaled that in the budget last night that we wanted staff to look at additional revenue opportunities and identified what some of those are. What we've heard from Vancouver rights is they want their taxes to be reasonable, but they also um, are happy with paying with fees for service. So making sure that we have cost recovery and fees like business licenses, um, a whole host of things across the board. We're also seeing um, some unprecedented investment from uh, the provincial government with their budget coming out uh, that can help to alleviate some of the spending that the city has had to do. So there'll be a number of uh, conversations and work going on, but this is something that we take seriously um, and we're working towards. What I've heard a lot from Vancouverites is not just the affordability piece, but they wanted to feel like they're getting value for the money that's spent and it's being spent on the things that matter to them. And so people are going to see additional uh, pothole repair, I should say, in street crews out there. They're going to see additional investment in horticulture. Um, They're going to see additional investment in cleaning up public plazas and spaces, supporting library staff uh, to keep libraries um, great places for people to be, all those things that enhance quality of life and livability. Um, and that people feel have been neglected over a period of years. And they were neglected because we saw artificially low level of property taxes for about a decade at 2%, um, and the pace has outstripped it. And what you see as a result is the neglected um, city when people say, I don't feel like my city feels loved anymore, um, and it doesn't feel like it's it's taken care of and the maintenance is there. So we put an additional investment into cleaning, things like that. Um, the infrastructure piece in terms of um, the additional 1% that goes to infrastructure is because we do have that infrastructure deficit. It's why you see things like the side of the aquatic center falling off. Um, and we can't ignore that anymore. Um, the mayor has used the analogy of the house and the roof is leaking. If you don't fix the roof, um, then the foundation is going to get damaged and it's going to cost even more later on. And do you think people will be understanding of this or what kind of reaction have you been getting even from the 9.7% that was initially floated? Um, I think we're being really direct and really straight up about what the challenges and the issues are. I have um, I'm out in the community a lot, um, and over the last week I've been speaking about these challenges in media and community, and I've had a lot of people that come up to me that said, it's, you know, I'd rather not have such a, a significant tax increase, but I get it and I understand it, and at least you're, you guys are being transparent and you're telling us what it's going to be spent on. Um, and I think that that's what people elected us to do, so... Um, As I said, we've still got work ahead of us and we don't take this lightly at all. Um, But it is, I think, about investing in the right things that were underfunded previously. Right. So do you think that's the key then? So that if people see that, oh, look how quickly that road got fixed or there's more infrastructure repair happening, that people need to see the results? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, things like snow removal. Um, You know, ironically, we were making sure that we actually had a budgeted line item yesterday for snow removal while there was a snowstorm happening in the morning and council was hearing some speakers on the budget. Um, and people want to know that they're paying their taxes, but the roads will get cleared um, and garbage will get picked up and potholes will be fixed. Um, and those are that's really important to regain that trust from residents. How much work is in being done, Councillor Kirby Young, behind the scenes in terms of kind of turning things over, going through every item and just trying to find out how things can be done better? I can tell you there's a significant amount of work. Uh, We set up uh, a number of different meetings where we met with heads from each department and walked through um, really bringing um, both the, you know, returning and the new councillors up to date on what the different cost centres are in the departments, the sources of funding, 
what the spending is, um, where those programs are coming from. So there's a huge engagement going on between staff um, and between the council. And I think that you see it reflected in the budget um, with a commitment from staff and it was built right into the report around the need to identify those efficiencies and find those revenue opportunities. Um, and so I think we've been very clear that this isn't a trajectory that we want to continue. Um, and I think staff have heard that and they are working with us to try to find some of those efficiencies as we move forward. All right, thank you very much for your time this morning. No worries. Thanks for having me. That is Sarah Kirby-Young, ABC Vancouver City Council, talking about property tax increase passed at Council last night, 10.7% of an increase. That is huge. That is actually 1% more than had been expected. And they said that 1% is going for additional infrastructure renewal. Uh, They're also uh, replenishing the reserve for financial sustainability. There's more money for the police department services. And 5.7% funding for across all city services. Uh, So there's a lot in here. And I know that's a lot for Vancouver residents to digest because that is a huge increase, right? But are you okay with it if, as Councillor Kirby Young says, it's going to go towards visibly improving city services and what you see out there in the city? Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. (laughs) And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.